Hi, fantasy readers. This is Corinne Norton, your fellow book binger, and you are listening to the Finding Fantasy Reads podcast, where you can test out a new fantasy story every single week to find your next favorite author. Last week, you heard the first part of Merrily Merrily by Jennifer Kropf, and I'm eager to share the rest with you. Jennifer is a best-selling author of Christian fantasy. She's most well-known for her Winter Soul series, and A Soul as Cold as Frost was written with the intention of encouraging parents to read to their children before bed each night during the holidays. This story is a little bit grittier, and we left off with a mysterious prisoner and an unknown deal between Zane and an octosiren. If you haven't already listened to the first episode, you'll want to go back and do that now. Today's narrator is Peter Franson, host of Christian Geek Central. Stick around to the end, or check out today's show notes to see where you can find more from both the author and the narrator. For now, please enjoy Merrily, Merrily, Part 2, by Jennifer Kropp. Fifthly, the morning sun was blinding. Zane lay out over the crates, shielding his eyes with an arm until a shadow blocked the light. He peeled his lazy eyes open, bothered by the interruption, and a piece of half-rotted fruit hit his stomach. He gawked and flew to sit up, growling a curse at Tigris, but did not find his rival when he dragged himself to his feet. Sentra stared at him with her sleek, black eyes unblinking. The deck was almost empty behind her, and Zane flexed his fingers as he considered how easy it would be to toss her overboard to face the octosiren lingering below the ship. Zane imagined the creature might grow impatient and bite out the ship's belly to sink it soon. Sentra dared a glance at the snow seas, too. Zane prepared himself in case she struck. He would not go over the edge easy, and Sentra was no bigger than he was but her glassy eyes shifted back to him. He suppressed the shiver crawling up his spine. It was bloody impossible to tell what she was thinking behind those horrid black eyes. I'm here to warn you, she gargled. Zane blinked, slow and doubtful, but the tightness in his limbs trickled away as he studied the enemy pirate. Of what? He was sure she was about to lie, all part of his mother's game. Your mother wants you dead. She's trying to kill you. At that, Zane slackened, hardly believing her willingness to admit it. I know, he said, cringing at that awful conversation he had overheard. He angled his head. But why are you telling me? We're not friends. But a dangerous smirk found her mouth. No, Steelheart, you don't have any friends. Zane flinched as her finger came up to trace the buttons of his coat. Tigris found your weakness, you know. It's how he was able to get your mother and crew to turn over your birthright. Zane clenched his jaw and pretended not to care. So? So you and I are the same. I'm horrid and mean and vengeful, she said, and my spirit repels people. Perhaps you'd like to feed this crew to me and my father— Perhaps you'd like to donate this magnificent ship to our fleet and help me rule another crew at my father's side. She pursed her large lips. Your mother is a cunning ashworm with her deals, but I know you can make deals too. Sentra's unusual eyes kept her from being truly beautiful, but she was confident, and for the first time 
Zane saw it as something to be admired, something he might use to hurt those who had wronged him, starting with his mother, and then Tigris. It is a sad day on the winter snow seas when a mother turns on her own child. Sentra dropped her hand and leveled her onyx eyes on him again. My father says we cannot trust someone willing to turn on their own offspring. It means they will turn on anyone if the price is right, and I'm inclined to agree. I could kill the Octosiren, Zane considered. I could win back the favor of my crew, take them out from under my mother's rule. But Sentra let out an unfeminine grunt. Your mother fed you to that octosiren in the first place. If you can't admit that to yourself, Steelheart, maybe you deserve to die in that beautiful monster's jaws. With that, the enemy pirate turned and sauntered over the sunlit deck, her layers of skirts fanning out with the sea wind. Zane rolled his eyes. Only Sentra would consider the grotesque octosiren to be a beautiful thing. I'll be back in ten days plus one to hear your answer, she glanced back, a warning. Don't go anywhere, Steelheart. Zane's face changed. Was that a threat? But she paused to stare up at the skies. And those birds, she grimaced. Zane glanced up, only now noticing how many white creatures circled above their ship. Some had landed on the rails he hadn't noticed while he had been napping. Sentra's black eyes dropped back down to him curiously. They're watching you, she stated. Zane stared after Sentra until she moved to the edge of the boat and hopped off, her wide, dreadful wings ripping out from her back to take her over the snow seas, scaring some of those white birds away. He envied how easily the girl could come and go, and he imagined what a battle between his crew and hers would look like, with her crew able to fly and land on their deck at will. He shook the thought from his mind and eyed the birds wreathing the pink skies as he stormed across the deck, deciding he did not care for sunshine anymore. Bloody frost-bitten Sentra. It seemed even she wanted to use him for something. No marriage, then. It seemed he would not be forced to wed the enemy after all, but her price was his ship and crew. He was not sure he could stomach the idea, even after how they had turned on him, and he did not trust Sentra. She would probably kill him anyway. I can show you how to handle that. A voice like a river filled Zane's head, and he snapped his eyes over to the middle-aged man, Michael McGraith. The man rested on the bench in his cage. Zane looked around in surprise and tried to remember why he had come down here. Your anger, Michael clarified. The man pinched a tiny white flower with a gold center between his fingers, a fragile thing in comparison to his muscular frame. There were no flowers at sea apart from frost lilies. Zane might have asked how the man had come by it, but assumed the old man was hiding garden pieces in one of the many pockets on his black jacket. I used to be angry too, Michael said, plucking the last few petals from the flower and dropping them into the pile already scattered over the floor. Zane eyed him and allowed another step towards the cage doors. How did you deal with it? How did you make your anger go away? He could not help but notice that this old man radiated a sort of peace that was foreign to Zane. In the way the man spoke and stared and observed, it was all rather quiet. 
Finally, the man raised the petalless flower and pitched it to the floor where Zane's eyes followed it. Verses, he brushed his hands clean of the flower's remains. Wisdom, he then added. Zane cocked a brow. Wisdom? I can teach you some, if you'd be willing to listen, Michael's gaze flickered up. But Zane only folded his arms. If the coal lining his eyes was not evidence enough, he was sure the snarl upon his lips would be. I have better things to do than listen to an old man ramble on about a thing or three. At the old man comment, Michael seemed to stifle a grunt, but he repositioned himself on the bench and leaned back against the bars of the cage. He appeared comfortable, even though nothing about the ship's cages were comfortable. Zane had been shoved in them plenty of times during the early seasons of his time string when he disobeyed his mother, or broke a rule of the ship, or angered one of the bigger crewmates. He could never sleep on those damp, hard floors, especially with an empty stomach. What would you do if you could master your anger, pirate? Michael asked, folding his arms and displaying trained muscles. Zane shifted his jaw back and forth, wondering why this man bothered to ask. No one ever asked him his reasons. No one bothered to ask him much about anything. I would take back my ship, he decided. I would win the affection of my crew. Do you want their affection? The man drummed his fingers against his biceps. Zane shrugged. I suppose. I don't want to wind up dead or... Alone was the word he did not finish with. Zane slammed his mouth shut, his eyes narrowing in on the prisoner that had already gone too far with his questions. Michael raised his palms in his own defense. I didn't ask you for your secrets, boy. I won't pry them from you. I wish to offer a solution to your anger, to see what you might do with the solution if I give it to you. Zane did approach the cage now, hands curling around the bars as he stared down at the arrogant fool before him. He imagined how he could make this man suffer if he continued his little manipulative game of questioning. Zane could practically hear the man knocking against the steel, coating his heart, trying to get in to destroy him. Secrets. Everyone wants my secrets, he muttered. Even you, it seems. At that, Michael stood. But Zane did not cower or back away, even though the old man could reach through the bars and grab him. I don't want your secrets, he said again. I will offer you verses at no cost to help you with your anger if you want them. That is all. That is all, Zane mused, not believing it for a second. You don't wish to make a deal for your freedom? You don't wish to trick me into letting you out? And the man sighed, much like he had done in the street when the silver-eyed boy had run his mouth. In the early seasons of my time string, I had a temper. I let it flare until I had driven away all my beloveds, he said. So I learned verses. I still recite them in my mind, even now. The wisdom keeps my heart steady. For some bloody reason, Zane didn't think the old man was lying. I have my own ways to do that, he said thinking of the books on his night table, books he had kept hidden for all the seasons he had been collecting them, since Tigris would howl with laughter if he ever discovered Zane liked to read. I suppose I study verses too, he realized. The man's interest peaked at that. Is that so? Do you like books then? A funny smile tugged at the corner of his mouth, even though he tried to suppress it, as though it stirred a hidden joke in his mind. 
but Zane dropped his hands from the cage and took a step back. A secret. The books were a secret. And this man had just dug it out of him. No magic or spells or visions of the future were even used. You're dangerous, Zane realized. Michael shrugged. Some might say that, but not for the reasons you think. Who are you? And don't just tell me your name this time. Zane's hand padded along his hip for the grip of his cutlass. I'm the commander of the patrols, Michael answered, and Zane felt the color drain from his face. He had heard of the patrols, a legion raised by powers Zane knew little of. He had never met one, wasn't even sure they existed until this moment. But confirming stories of the landfolk was difficult when the Kaleidostone spent most of its seasons on the dunes or far into the snow seas. Michael's face glimmered with a smile, his butter-gold beard glowing in the sunlight from the window. Yes, boy. You can bet your scotcher we're as real as the ship below your boots. And I can show you how to become someone with honor, unless you think you're better off with the bloodthirsty ashworms on this boat that want you dead. Zane could not move now. He stared at the man with the golden hair and serene eyes, replaying again that moment in the street when the two others in black moved as a single unit in perfect agreement. You want to learn how to control your anger? You want to see what a real family looks like? The man went on, and Zane found himself moving away until his back hit the wall. Then come with me. Michael's eyes sparkled, a light of their own, and Zane was sure he was dreaming it. Are you mad? His own voice was high and wrong, and... You're my prisoner. You're not going anywhere, and neither am I. I'm going to be the bloody captain of this ship, and you're going to shut your... His voice trailed off as the man reached for the hooked staff that was leaning against the wall below the window. I told you I'm the commander of the patrols, Michael said, studying his weapon for just a moment. And you now know I'm dangerous. His topaz gaze flickered back up. So, do you really believe I would have been taken by that flimsy crew if I didn't want to be? Zane's blood turned cold as the man tapped the heel of his staff against the cage door and it swung open, as though the lock had been picked hours ago. The man, Michael, walked out and came to tower over where Zane found himself shaking against the wall. His hands fumbled for his cutlass, and he drew it, holding it up towards the great man on his wobbling fish legs. You're my... Zane choked. Prisoner? Michael guessed. Yes, yes. He waved a tired hand through the air and turned towards the stairs. Time to go, boy. Zane watched in dismay as the man climbed the stairs at his leisure until his black clothes disappeared through the door at the top. Zane was frozen, a pillar of flesh and pumping blood in the ship's belly, until he snapped back into himself and raced up the stairs. He could not let the prisoner get away. He whirled the cutlass in his grip, shaking out of his trance and reminding himself how to slash and destroy. He was a pirate, a bone-snapping, weed-eating pirate. His mother's pale eyes would spill with disapproval if he lost her prized trading piece, and Tigress's cutting words would eat at him for days. The crew would abandon Zane if this man escaped. It did not matter that Zane was the one to capture him in the first place. His colors burned red and angry in his chest as he realized he had been duped. The sun blinded him when he plunged out onto the deck, 
but he skidded to a halt at the sight of his entire crew standing in defense, cutlasses drawn, staring at this one man with golden hair who looked back at them with a lethal gaze. Zane eyed the man's back, right between his shoulder blades. He could sneak up behind him. He could... I wish to make a deal with the prophetess of this ship. Michael's voice was a clean current, a symphony of wild nature. And I'm in a bit of a hurry, if you all don't mind. Zane's gaze fired over to where his mother swept down the stairs to the main deck, long black skirts gliding behind. Her cherry red lips curled up as she looked Michael over, likely deciding what she was going to do with him for his outrageous demand that she hurry. And what sort of deal would you like to make, Commander? She purred. Zane blinked. So, she knew then. She had seen what Michael was when he was captured. Somehow. I wish to fight your best pirate, Michael said. You choose who. And if I lose, I will bring you ten plus two troves of gold rings and fine pearls, which is everything I have to my name. A fair price, I imagine. Zane cringed at the glistening in his mother's eyes. And if you win? It was a hungry whisper. She wanted to play his game, to prove her crew would crush him if she wished, and Zane knew then that this Michael McGraith was truly mad. Most knew better than to challenge a prophetess in the first place, let alone one as renowned across the snow seas as his mother. If I win, Michael said again, I would like to leave this ship unharmed firstly, and I would like Zane Cohen Marcus Bosewither to leave with me if he wishes. Zane's face paled. What? But the prophetess's mocking laugh cut off Zane's question. You have a deal, she snapped, and Zane staggered a step back, blood thickening to fire and ice. The arrogance, the confidence in what she thought Zane would decide, that he would bow a knee before her if given the choice. The shock hit him in the gut, the same way it had when he realized his arm had been pricked to leak the smell of his blood into the water for the octosiren. Not only was she willing to give him up for a chance at treasure, willing to bet away her own offspring, she had done it easily. Even after all this time, the fortune teller thought she had Zane pinned under her spell. But she hadn't called him Steelheart all these seasons for nothing. Michael cast Zane a look of understanding, and perhaps sorrow. By his angle, the man's face was unseen by the rest of the crew. Only if you want to, son he added, leaving the choice in Zane's hands. But Zane stared. Son? A strange mixture rose in Zane's lungs, and he could have sworn he felt cool violet creeping over the bleak shades of gray and fiery reds. His hand drifted to his chest, and he rubbed it, testing the sensation he did not recognize. It was agonizing, truthful, interesting. When he glanced up, Michael, along with the rest of the Kaleidostone crew, waited with bated breath. His mother's pale eyes were sharp as fangs as she realized his hesitation. He wondered if she wished she could take back how quickly she had responded. Steel heart, indeed. For the first time in his time string, Zane realized he could forget this crew he had tried so hard to keep, this mother who had tossed him away, and the soiled memories that came with them. The two boys from the trio in the village filled his mind. Their faces had not been wicked or malicious, 
or filled with bloodlust, they had been laughing because maybe, maybe they were happy. Steelheart? The prophet's tone was cold, threatening, demanding that he answer. Zane glanced at the snow seas, the blazing sun above, the crates of fish and rotting fruit, and the spilling burlap bags of peppermint. Could he leave this? Yes, he bloody well could. Do it, he breathed, eyes flickering to Michael McGraith. The man's staff stopped it spinning the moment the words were spoken. Michael cast him a small smile of agreement. The prophetess was silent for the first time in Zane's time string. Poison filled her stare, pale eyes narrowing. I choose Lothar, she spat, the act of the sultry sea witch vanishing. Lothar. Because Lothar was the most fearsome of the crew. Lothar was the one who had taught Zane to seek, kill, and destroy. And Zane felt that new violet in his chest wither away to gray again. Zane had been trained right into the dirt and sea and sand, which was how he knew Lothar was a pillar, not easily tipped over. Zane pulled his shaking hands off his cutlass and clasped them together to watch, to witness his luck or lack thereof. Lothar sneered, dragging his hands to the barrel of spare cutlasses, not even testing them to select the best one. Bloody, overconfident ashworm. Michael waited as the prophetess slithered over the deck to extend her hand to seal the deal, the promise of rings and pearls dancing across her unlit eyes, and a spark of worry lingering in the corners that she could not quite hide. Michael shook her hand, wincing at the stiffness in his arm as he raised it to do so, and Zane watched his fate be passed, just like that, into someone else's hands. If Michael won, Zane would leave. He was sure of it now as his mother's eyes settled on him from where she fidgeted across the deck after the impulsive deal she had made. She was a woman who was meant to see the future, who perhaps had not checked the future of this deal. Lothar was a giant in comparison to Michael's aching, hunched frame as the two readied themselves. One of them would be dead soon, and Zane felt a stone of regret sink through his stomach that he might witness this old man's death at the hands of his ruthless former teacher. But everyone had always fought against Zane. No one had ever fought for him. Until now. Until Michael McGraith. Sixthly, Lothar prowled like a sea demon, sniffing the fear in the air as he rounded to the main deck's center. Michael waited until the pirate was ready, a respectable act considering no pirate would have granted him the same respect. The scars along Lothar's shoulders gleamed in the late morning sun as he slid off his coat and tossed it in a heap. He kept his violent yellow gaze on Michael— certainly deciding how he might snap the middle-aged man's bones and wet the deck with his blood. Zane found himself holding his breath. If Michael lost to Lothar, Zane would have a dreadful price to pay for the risk he had taken. Lashings, at the very least. He might be thrown to the octosiren after all. Finally, Michael took a deep breath and marched to the center of the deck to meet his foe, and Zane faltered at Michael's walk. For gone was the limp, gone was the slow moving and stiffness, 
the weak muscles the old man had convinced everyone he had developed from the beating he'd taken as he was dragged onto the ship. Bloody ashworm, Zane whispered and grinned. Lothar stopped his cutlass twirling, sizing up the man who appeared before him, who held out his staff at the ready and cast a polite smile as a cracking sound filled the air. Frost and ice spiraled out the end of Michael's tall cane like a dozen silver blades, and Zane found himself laughing to his mother's disdain. Lothar snapped his cutlass across the space, attempting to get a slice in before Michael was ready, but Michael didn't seem the sort to be taken by surprise. He ducked like a youth, moved like a spuddle pun, and unleashed strikes like an ashworm taking its bite. Perhaps Michael was not wrong when he claimed he was not old. The dreadful dance was fast and cold and startling, pirate metal against ice and wood, until Lothar's cutlass was slashed from his hand. The pirate's yellow eyes trailed his weapon, and he gawked as the foot of Michael's staff landed in his gut, sending him tipping flat onto the deck. Lothar didn't scramble back in panic, though his eyes assured he wanted to. He remained steady for the killing blow Michael would give. But a dozen points of ice hovered at the pirate's throat, and Michael's warm golden gaze flickered up to the prophetess who was a porcelain statue by the rail. She glared down at Lothar, at her failed crewman. I think I win, Michael's cool river's voice blanketed the tension on the deck. Zane unclasped his hands and found his fingers grazing over his cutlass again. He didn't know why. Didn't know what he would do with it if he was compelled to draw it. But his mother's dim gaze fired up to the middle-aged man, the man who was meant to be her prisoner. You don't win until he's dead, her voice cracked. Finish it. Crew members grumbled amongst themselves, unnerved by the command. But Lothar had failed her. So even if Michael didn't finish the pirate, the prophetess would cast him to the sirens soon enough anyway. Zane wondered why the old man didn't just kill Lothar and be done with it. But Michael stood tall and stared at the woman whose pecan hair fluttered in the sea breeze. He looked past her to where the shore was in view, close enough now to reach by rowboat. "'I'll take my leave,' he said, clear and certain. But the prophetess smirked, those cruel red lips doing nothing to waver Michael's attention. "'My son does not belong to you unless you win, Commander.' Michael bowed slightly, and Zane's heart sank as he wondered if Michael would agree. But the old man raised himself, and a flit of fire burned in his golden eyes. "'Your son does not belong to anyone. Not even you. The spells you've wound around his heart and soul have loosened, milady.' The prophetess's face fell. "'And don't try to spit those spells to keep me here, either. They won't work.' A crumpling sound filled the air, and Zane's eyes flashed to the snow seas, where a path of ice was forming from the coast. It raced over the rippling water like a white banner, reaching for the kaleidostone. Zane's heart began to thunder with a sound he did not know his body could make. When he glanced at the old man, he realized Michael was still. The path of ice over the snow seas was not being made by him. "'It's your decision, son,' Michael's voice carried over the deck to Zane as the pirates began to stir. 
The crew looked to the prophetess to see what she would do to discover their orders. That pounding in Zane's chest grew to war drums as he looked to the beach and saw them, the army in black. There were dozens, their crow-black jackets sharp against the white snow on the shore. They had made the ice path. Michael's allies. Without another thought, Zane bolted. His breathing hitched as he stumbled down the stairs below decks, so riled he nearly missed the door to his own cabin. But he sprang back and tried to think, tried to sort through what he would need. His belongings were few. His books, his bone dagger, his cutlass. Zane's hands shook as he scraped what he could off the surfaces of his room into a burlap sack. When he was finished, he turned for his door. He took one last deep, shuddering breath and looked around the creaking walls, the tipping floor, the dirty window, the bad memories. Perhaps he was not running away from it all. Perhaps he was only running towards something else. The sky seemed a heavier blue when he came back. Every crewmate on the Kaleidostone had their weapons drawn. The air was tense and thick, and Zane looked from one crewmate to the next, then to his mother, who steamed like a burning ship in battle when she saw his satchel of belongings. Let's go, Zane heard himself say, dragging his gaze back to Michael. Though the ship was filled with enemies, the old man did not look afraid. A knowing smile warmed his face, and he nodded, extending a hand. To land, then. Zane took the man's hand, not caring if those watching thought it unusual or weak, Michael hopped onto the rail and Zane followed, and only then did he realize why he would need the old man's grip. For balance. A long, icy slide lay before them, down to the snow seas. Zane's chest tightened at the thought of that ice snapping, of finding himself in the water and being snatched up by the octosiren, still waiting in the depths. But Michael didn't give him a measure more to debate— the old man pulled him onto the rink and Zane's stomach leapt as they slid down the slope. He nearly screamed at how fast they moved, certain he would never slide over ice and snow like this again if given the choice. A few in black had come to meet them. They were halfway across the bridge when Zane overheard his mother's growling voice from the kaleidostone. Do it! Kill him! But the deal! It was Tigris of all mates who protested. I agreed not to kill the commander. I said nothing of Steelheart. Zane's blood ran cold as her furious growl roared over the snow seas. He did not have time to spin before the golden trident she hurled into a deadly spiral reached him. But the trident did not spear through his chest. Zane turned to find three wooden hooks before his face, all snatching that trident from the air and holding it in place before it met its mark. He blinked at the staffs. Michael's was not even one of them. Ragnashak, she has good aim, one of them muttered, and Zane looked to find the silver-eyed boy at his side, gripping one of those staffs, holding his mother's heartless blow. Maybe she'd like to join us, he added with a grin to the others, all of whom chuckled, a sound that hit the colors in Zane's chest with a burst. They dropped the trident onto the bridge, and Michael used his heel to nudge the gilded weapon into the snow seas, where Zane watched it sink and sink and sink. A shuffle of white and silver appeared in his peripheral vision. The birds, those same ones that had been circling above his ship, 
spiraled towards the kaleidostone. They landed on the rail, building a wall of white feathers between the boys in black and the crew of the ship, staring at those on board with narrowed, beady eyes. It was the most absurd thing Zane had ever bloody seen. The silver-eyed boy snorted. Those pesky critters seem to like you, he said to Zane on his way by as he headed down the bridge. If you were nicer to them, Nicholas, they'd like you too, another boy spoke up as he followed. Pocinian, the other boy from the street, his shoulder was wrapped in bandages now. And the last boy was not a boy at all, but a girl, Zane realized. Uneven stems of choppy, light hair stuck out from the hat wrapping her head. Her eyes were large and fish-like, and when her gaze slid to Zane, she smiled to reveal a set of crooked teeth. Zane glanced away. Wanda, at least try not to scare the pirate boy, Pocinian called back at her, and she grunted. What's your name, anyway? The silver-eyed boy yelled from where he twirled his hooked staff with long, slender fingers. His grin was a pinch wild, and those white teeth glimmered as much as the snowy shores behind him. Zane opened his mouth, but paused. There was a river of blood on his name, and so much of that name belonged to the woman who had just wanted to see him die, and a man he had barely known who had left him with that woman. Steelheart, he decided. At that, the boy, Nicholas, stopped walking and cocked a doubtful brow. Then he rolled his eyes. Don't be so dramatic, pirate, he said, turning back to the shore. Giving yourself a nickname like a circus clown, he shook his head. Who does that? But it did not sound like a true mockery. Perhaps an invitation to share his real name whenever he decided the time was right. Zane glanced once more at the kaleidostone, where the birds held their barrier of beaks aimed the other way. For the first time since Michael had struck the deal, Zane did not feel afraid to turn his back on the ship, to that woman who called herself his mother, to those titles and labels he had carried for all his seasons. He swiveled on the ice and trotted after the boys in black, Michael following close behind. The old man slid over the ice on his heels, his staff gliding along behind him as though it were the force moving him forward. Fresh snow sparkled the shore, blanketing the land in white where the rest of the patrol waited. Two of them didn't carry a staff like the others, and in place of the pure black garments, they wore white coats lined with silver threads. Though the boys in black began hiking up the snowy hill, using their staffs to force the snow to part before them, one of the boys in white remained. He was young, Messy, light blonde hair swept over his head, not quite as tidy as the impressive coat he wore. The boy was no older than Zane by the looks of it, not as old as any of the others in the group. He had a funny smile that blended warmth and cunning, like Michael's. The odd boy extended a gloved hand towards Zane, who stopped at the very line where the sea met the snow. All the others, including Michael, journeyed up the beach, but it seemed this boy was in no rush to catch up. I'm Thomas, he said. Zane studied the hand, looking for a threat, waiting for the boy to spew a harsh word or three to claim his territory among this group. But the boy's smile only widened, reaching his bronze eyes. Ragnashak, you're going to be trouble, aren't you? He studied Zane's worn clothes, the torn sleeves, the skull and frost lily tattoo, the coal wringing his eyes. What's your name, pirate? Zane wasn't sure why this boy had a different spirit than the others, 
why the twinkle of mischief in his bronze eyes told tales and held promises of devilish fun in the future. Zane found himself raising his hand to shake the boys. Thomas. His name was Thomas. I'm Zane Cohen Margus Bosewither, he heard himself say. The boy scowled. Well, Ragnashuk, I'll never remember all that. Can I just call you Zane Cohen? Half a name is easier than a whole one like that. A true smile came out, and Zane folded his arms. All right, he agreed. And to answer your question, yes. I imagine I'm going to be all sorts of bloody trouble for your merry scotchers. Thomas bellowed a laugh, a real laugh, that made the colors in Zane's chest glow. Second to lastly. The snow seas had never felt so cold and empty. The octosiren paced the waters, abandoning its lair from sunset to sunrise, searching for him, for the boy with blood as sweet as mint and sap, and as vibrant as the magic of the ancient winter woods. He was not like the others, that boy who had bartered and bantered, and had reeked of desire to be playful and young. The others always smelled of salt and sea and snails and greed, of dirty metal swords and violence. The orange and blood-red surface of the snow seas shattered when something plunged into the waters, disrupting its near silence. But it was not the boy who returned. It was not the mint blood it smelled, but an icy will and the dark, sticky blood of sin. Pecan brown hair drifted around the woman as she descended like a hunting siren, lovely and pale-eyed. She hovered in the seas before the octosiren, who let its grin slide open so she might witness the sheer length and atrocity of its teeth. You are not as afraid of me as you should be, prophetess, the octosiren warned. The woman tilted her head, a predator herself in a way. I've come to strike a deal, her mind's voice carried on the current, but the octosiren's smile only grew. I see. The creature began to slide, moving around in idle circles where the prophetess floated in grace. But I've already made a deal with the boy you sent me, your son. That boy is not my son. Not any more. Shame. I rather liked him. He smelled of dreams and promise. The octosiren paused, then added, and he smelled of an animal locked in a cage for too long. The prophetess's lip curled into a snarl. You will bring him to me when you catch him, she said. That is the deal I wish to make. He will return here in the future, during a time when the stakes will be quite high for him. Once you catch him, I want him delivered to me. The octosiren considered this. How interesting, it said. I suppose I can barter another deal, in addition to the one the boy made with me. I rather liked his deal. Another long smile, and the prophetess's face changed. What did he offer you? Worry slipped into her silent tone. Your riches. The octosiren's slit eyes traveled up to the surface, where the kaleidostone's belly coasted through the patch of iceless waters. He showed me the precise spot where I must bite through your ship to have them. 
he negotiated my patience, that I would have to wait until you came down here to barter, and now that you have arrived, my lust for gold shall be satisfied. He... what? The prophetess whirled back to her boat, to her home, to her rings. Why would he tell you to bloody wait for me to come to you? So that you might watch. The octosiren's roaring laugh rippled through the waters as it spiraled once to gain speed and punched through the bottom of the ship, spilling away timber and supplies, jewelry and rubies. The prophetess screeched a mouthful of cold water as the ship groaned and teetered, her life's work leaking from the kaleidostone's broken guts in a river of gold rings and black pearls, though the sight of the monster gobbling down her riches was more than she could behold without a shudder of rage and an underwater scream. The prophetess felt a tug of admiration in the corner of her spirit for the boy who had sold out her troves of treasure for his own survival, who had discovered a way to harden his heart from her for all his seasons, and who had abandoned her in the end. He was a bloody clever boy. I hope you enjoyed listening to The Rest of Merrily Merrily by Jennifer Kropp, narrated by Peter Franson of Christian Geek Central. If you want to read more by Jennifer, go to jenniferkropp.com to find more of her books. Her latest release is Welcome to Fay Cafe, and it's the first in her new series, High Court of the Coffee Bean, which sounds like a perfectly cozy series, which is a newish genre that I find fascinating. I hope to feature some cozy fantasy in the coming weeks. If you enjoyed listening to Pater narrate the story, you might also enjoy listening to his podcast, Christian Geek Central, where he discusses movies, video games, and all things enjoyed by self-proclaimed geeks from a Christian worldview. If you're enjoying listening to Finding Fantasy Reads, please consider leaving a review. Reviews help me to know how to improve the show, whether it's to keep the things you like or get rid of the things you don't, and it helps new listeners find the podcast. A good review can often be the tipping point to get someone to listen or subscribe, which means I can keep making more new episodes for you. If you're not sure how to leave a review, check out today's show notes for some easy instructions. I will also have links in there for all the sites mentioned. Thank you all for listening, and happy reading.